Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 163 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we bring you Archer and Elegant on Rituals. Here's your hosts, Woody and the Beast. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Sitting next to me, as often usual, is Mr. Beast. Hiding in the dark corner, Woody. It's the dark corner. We keep you in the dark and throw you women. And there's no complaint. See? But next time, can we have a brunette? The blondes and the redheads. uh, You're now being picky? Yes, I am. A man cannot live by one color alone. That is a spoiled, dominant, top sadist. (sighs) I'm a sick man. Yes, you are. Woody. Yeah. This is your cast tonight. Yes, it is. Yes. These are some great guests you got, though. It is. Uh, these are friends of mine from the beautiful state of Georgia. and Georgia. on Georgia. And on the line is Archer and Elegant. Hi. Hello. Good Hi. evening. The first time I saw you was at Frolicon, let me think, what, four years ago, something, you know, even longer. <laughs> and you were doing a ritual. I had never been to one before. I went down there with my partner, and we uh, were mesmerized and emotionally attached and all kinds of things. Would you tell our audience a little bit about what you do? Okay. The class that you witnessed and participated in, I assume, was the class we do called Endorphin Suit for the Unconventional Soul. That is correct. For that ritual, we take out volunteers. We probably a, a month or six weeks beforehand, we put out a call for volunteers for people who want to participate in a flesh hook ritual, and they send in what they are looking to get out of the ritual out of the ritual class. Probably the hardest part of that entire process is taking the sheets of paper that we get sometimes three and four pages per person talking about what they want to get out of it and selecting one for the class that will fit in the time slot, fit in the format that we have, because it is a class at the same time that it is a ritual. And that limits us in some ways how we can do what we can do in that location. And things that you feel like you have the ability to handle. Oh, certainly. Things that are, things that are within my ability to handle and to be able to do, because there have been some people who have sent forth requests that I did not feel that I was up to in my practices. What people don't realize that are listening to this is there is so much that goes on in that hour, hour and a half period that overtakes people in the audience and drags them in kicking and screaming to the scene. And there's two ways of participating as an audience member. There's an active way and a passive way. Active where they go stand around the perimeter of the room and they actually participate in the ritual passively where you observe it and i've done both and found that even observing it you get completely emotionally connected to it with what you said there we need probably to explain a little more about what goes on because when you say participate and we say participate 
these people aren't being hooked or hurt or anything else. That's true. <laughs> They're standing in a circle around the room, but go ahead and tell them how they participate. Okay. Once we've selected the candidate, I will begin a conversation with them, either online, in writing, or on the phone, and I will talk with them about the things that they're wanting to confront. We will discuss what we're going to do. They will have a general idea of how the ritual is going to go. Many times I will ask them for a list of positive statements and a list of negative statements. About uh, what they're trying to release. Negative self-talk, things that apply that they've heard, insults that have been hurled at them that have affected them over time. And I will start to pull all of these together into a series of shorter statements. Usually I will reframe whatever statements they send so that it comes back at them in a way that they haven't heard it necessarily before or not in their original context. And they will start off, we will place two hooks in the candidate's chest when it comes time for the ritual, and they will be attached to a sled. Our sled is a large leather bowl uh, about two foot across. And then prior to them beginning, the people who have volunteered to participate actively in the ritual will line up around the room, around the perimeter of the room, and each one will be given, it's probably about a quarter pound sack of pea gravel in, in a nice little velvet bag. And they will also be given one of the statements, either the, either a, I, I'm calling them for this case, either a negative or a positive statement. And we will generally set the negative statements at the first half. And that is by design in order to help break down the normal armor and barriers that the candidate has and put them back to the place where they originally took in that negative energy from the world, from whatever source. So as they begin to move around the room with the sled, the active participants will read the statement and drop the bag of stones into the sled. The sled will slowly but surely get heavier and heavier as they go around the room. And, and as you've seen, such as at, when we do it at Frolicon, there's 80 to 90 people in the circle of participants. And that gets to be a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight being pulled by two hooks tied to a cord to the sled. And they're most of the time, unless there is some other situation where they can't, most of the time they are blindfolded. I can't remember, are they walking backwards? They are walking backwards because they're pulling this from their chest. Usually myself and somebody else are directly behind them to kind of help guide them a little bit, although the, the participants often reach out to try to guide them so they don't run into other people. Um, and also in case they did happen to fall down, um, get weepy, which is done in the past, uh, oh, yes. break that. Well, I, I've seen you catch them before. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Archer is behind the sled. So it's myself and someone else, the participant that has hooked the sled and then Archer. And Archer will often stop and have the statement repeated if it's uh, extremely necessary or if he wants to push that point home he will repeat it sometimes he will take his staff his big walking stick and put it in the sled and have them try to pull harder and as they go around the room the weight increases so it's not all of a sudden you're getting 25 pounds that they're pulling Mm -hmm. it's very gradual everybody that we have done this with has completed completed the ordeal 
as you say, like the first third is the the negative, and yes. so that's when the sled is the lightest. But it's also when people go through, uh, you know, the the first emotional bump of being torn down, broken down, and then having the reinforcement that you know you really have to understand what this means by Archer stopping the sled with the stick is really important. And then as it goes around to the next third and it lightens up a little bit and, and the more neutral statements, it's not as hard as an uh, observer to hear. The first ones are kind of hard for an observer to hear because it's like, what are you doing here? They're not just hard for the observer. Uh, I've found that doing it myself, I have rarely been able to speak my parts without also shedding tears or having a catch in my breath. It's uh, one of the things that I'm... And trying to encourage the people also to speak louder. Yeah, exactly. And they do have to go into the room with a uh, a dry vacuum to to, uh, get all the tears out of the carpet afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody in the room is shedding a tear by by the time you get done. And it is... A lot of people with these statements... Sometimes people will recognize their own concerns and their own burdens. Yes, it does ring home. It was one a couple of years ago. There was a gentleman doing the pulling, and he was talking about how he no longer felt like he was a man because of what had happened to him. And all of a sudden, another gentleman across the room just started booing, which set off a chain reaction because everybody else in the room says, okay, if this guy can cry, it's okay for me to cry too. It was, I've got chills right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's very powerful stuff. You call it endorphin soup because the participant, the main participant, is being powered by endorphins by the time they get part of the way around. I'm pretty convinced that there, there are endorphins running through all of us by the time it gets through running around. They may be a, a different levels of endorphins and different types of hormones that are that are at work, but rarely do I see people leaving there where I don't believe that some level of altered state for them has happened. And it's a lot of it is because it's a shared many of the time, almost every time that we've done this, it's been a widely shared human experience that the participant is having trouble getting over or is blocked by. And we've all been blocked by something that we're facing and getting past it. So it, it harkens to them, whether it's the exact same or not, everyone in that room can relate. So as they go around past that first third and the remarks get a little easier to take, that seems to be a turning point because there's, there's a little bit of a breakdown there when, when it changes again, I noticed. It's designed to have that break point. And that break point was set second rather than first because we do want to break them down to that and get them back to that emotional state they were at when they were first impacted by the negative emotions and or negative aspects in their life that they're trying to get past. Once we do that shift and it moves past the negatives into some of the more neutral and then into the positives, the things that counteract or speak directly against the things that were said in the first half, Everyone gets a little lighter. The participant who is working the room with the hooks in their chest will actually oftentimes report that once it hit that point, 
they gained new strength. And each new thing not only gave them new strength, but the added weight no longer felt as heavy. Then it shifts from being an added weight on them to proof of added strength in them. This is a very spiritual process that you go through. Where did the ideal to combine the shamanic traditions have all put uh, the ordeal rituals together? What inspired you to bring it to the BDSM community? I'm certainly not the first. Uh, (laughs) Geoff Mains with the Urban Aboriginals, Fakir Musafar out of San Francisco, his practices, uh, I've done a few classes with him and been to several rituals with him. Oh, his rituals are amazing. Mm. They, they, they certainly are. And, uh, the, one of the funniest things about Fakir, of course, is when you read him or see him in print or on TV or any place else, you, you imagine him to be about eight foot tall and, and <laughs> he's anything and but huge. He's just a little over five foot mm-hmm. and he's and very, very slight. slender. Yeah. Yes. yes. But big. But to have but all big. of that, all of that spiritual power packed into that small body of his is just amazing to work with. Getting back to your question, the first time that I was actually drawn to this, uh, I just got back from Southwest Leather Conference out in Phoenix, as a matter of fact, and they have the closing ritual there is called the Dance of Souls. And the first year that we, Elliot and I went to that event, 11 years ago. Yeah, in 2006. In 2005, when we were registering to go to the event, I had heard about this, and they, and I came down, and Elegance there at the computer, and I told her, I said, you're registering us tonight for Southwest Letter Conference. Sign me up for Dance of Souls, the hook pull ritual. <laughs> and Elegant looks at me and says, but sir, you hate pain. <laughs> And I said, yeah, but something tells me that this is something I need to do. And I went that year. I had a, an amazing experience. I ran the gamut of emotions from, from breaking down into tears to laughing maniacally. I was with him, but I was not hooked. And he cried. He laughed. He screamed. He yelled. He, he was not himself, but it was not a bad thing. Who was performing the ritual? Uh, the Dance of Souls is a group hook pull, and it's put on, uh, the person who was leading it at that time was Elwood Reed out of Canada, out of, uh, up in the Vancouver area. And, uh, since then, the leadership of that, of the Dance of Souls transferred from him, and he, he is, uh, mentee of Fakir, transferred from him to Lauren, friend of ours, who was a former Emsel, and I forget which year. 2006. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. 2006. It may have been. And then actually the baton got passed to me and this was my first year leading that ritual, uh, as the piercing team lead for Southwest Leather Conference. Wow. And at that one, there are 15 people piercing because the dance itself brings in about 175 dancers. And we hooked at least 160 this past, just last month. Uh, and they pull against each other and against uh, stationary framework, and they guide their own journey in that case. But that led me, the next year, I uh, had Elegant participate, so she was hooked and I was not that year. And she had a good experience, and uh, she had to tell me to stop trying to guide her on my journey, that she needed to take <laughs> her own. Because, and, and then you went to Z's class. And then 
Combined with that, I'd also gone to Master Z of Dallas's, uh, he does a ritual class that is based on a ritual they do at the Butchman's Experience, where they do a burden release a law and they have the, the sacrificial person, uh, lays down and has needles inserted for each person who's wanting to drop a habit or, or just divest themselves of something. A needle is put in and as I was going through these classes, I started doing more and more research and digging into things. Now, I had always been a bit of an oddball spiritually. My mother was a was a beatnik in San Francisco during the Haight-Ashbury days, pre-hippies. <laughs> Before the hippies, she was still over there in the Haight-Ashbury, so she raised me with a healthy curiosity towards spiritual life. Do you consider yourself a modern shaman? For probably 10 years, I completely avoided the term shaman, mostly because you can't throw a stick without hitting three of them anymore. <laughs> That's, that is so, so, so true. Self-confessed, of course. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, eventually, I had some things that happened. I'm an individual practitioner, so I am not trained by any specific school uh, in what I do, self-taught. I call myself a universalist, where my uh, core belief is that every spiritual path gets about three inches of truth, and they all think that they have the whole truth, and eventually we'll get to the point where we put them all together in the right order, and we'll, uh, and we'll actually have heaven on earth then. Uh, I have no fear that it's going to happen anytime soon. How true. <laughs> okay, so we've gotten past the, the middle section of the ritual, and now we're into the part where it becomes positive, and again, there's a change. Yes, that change uh, kicks in, and as I mentioned earlier, the participant with the hooks begins to feel stronger and stronger as they go around. And they will actually, even though by the time they get to the end of it, this sled is weighing in probably 40 pounds or better, they're Sometimes dr- we're adding three or four bags of rocks at various times, just for emphasis. Yeah, uh, I will sometimes cheat and put my, my, my shaman's thumb on the scale and drop a few extras. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they begin to feel more and more empowered to deal with it. Uh, they see the strength. They believe the words because they invest in it. They put a level of trust into myself. The addition of the fact that we have so many active participants around the room that are pulling for them, and you can hear it when they start to pull for them, maybe and sometimes not necessarily audibly, but you can feel the energy shift. The last few participants are family. Usually. Usually so. That's where the love comes in. Oh, certainly. The the love to, to finish the thing out is certainly a big part for many of them. Also, frequently, I will put family at the apex of the negatives just to drive home, but more often towards the positives because frequently are the people who were there for them as they went through it the first time. And definitely at the very end because they're there to continue support, not just in that day, but as the days go on. And so the very last thing there is so much emotion going, there's so many endorphins flowing, the body kind of metamorphosizes into something different. And and I know you have to often hold them right there at the end because they can hardly stand. They're frequently completely 
rot by that time. They've, they've spilled every ounce of emotion they have, and they're oftentimes to the point where they can barely stand. But we still push them a little bit further right at the very end of it. I will pin that sled to the ground again and give them a few more words, a few more positive words, and then I will remind them that what we've done there isn't the end of it. And what we've done is not what's going to keep them progressing towards what they need. So the last thing that we do, I pass them a set of shears. Safety shears. Safety shears, <laughs> yes. Sharp objects in, in flying people is not a good thing. With, with blindfolds, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, with blindfolds. <laughs> and I tell them that in order to, to turn loose of all of that, they have to cut themselves free from those bonds. So they actually have to perform the cutting of that cord at the very end for themselves because they're the one that's going to have to deal with it through all the rest of life. And it drives home that point that they're in charge of their life. We can give support and we can give help, but the active work that has to be done is theirs to do. I've heard this sometimes presented as cutting the energetic ties and it is the ties that hold you down. It is the ties that prevent you from flying. And when you cut them, you have a new lightness about you. They certainly report that in, in all the cases that, I've, that we've done so far, that after, after cutting that, you can physically see the change, the relief, the last little shred of strength that, had, that they were holding back together for themselves just to remain upright. Oftentimes, that's it. They fall back into their support person. They collapse there onto the floor, and we shift the attention away from them at that point to Very give quickly. them their privacy for that for that time. We also make sure, though, that uh, we remind people this is a powerful event, and these people need their space for that time right afterwards and the rest of the day, and 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 the rest of the day to be kind to these people and not. Delve too deeply. Thank them. Tell them it was a wonderful experience and you appreciate it, but don't go into question mode with oh, them at that yeah. point. You, you don't want to bring back any of those feelings at that point because they've shed them. And most of the time, they haven't remembered it until later. Yeah. Their mind is just flying. You have a little recovery area behind the stage typically where the family yes. can take them and Yes, family isolates them, them off to the side and kind of isolates them away. And we tend to hold them there until after the classroom has cleared out. Right. And we've done it at other venues where we just, here's a corner, let's put some chairs around. And uh, for all the times, one we do every year. So it's pretty pretty set there. And there was one last thing that happens. And Thank you very much. That, that's, <laughs> and that's when, Elegant, you go off in, into a, a corner and you vi- invite people to come up to you. Um, yeah, we usually go to the other side of the room from where... The original person has been, again, as he said, we draw their attention over there. And I'm there to accept any burdens that the rest of the audience participants may want to try to get rid of. And and I go through a little spiel about what we're doing and that these should be small because it's their burden. They have to work on it. And it's what I'm doing is I'm taking a cut. Archer is doing a cut on me for every person that comes through that line. With the symbolic, let's throw a little Christianity in here, cleanse by blood. Mm -hmm. Or pushing it through a body, out of them, through my body, and then out through the blood. 
there are many ways that people can look at it. And I tell them, you, you look at it whichever way you want to look at it. The main thing is something that you want to, to take care of in your life, whether it be a bad experience that happened to you or I want to stop being a bitch. You know, let's, let's let you work on that. They come up to me. They can either whisper it. They can just think it. They can say it out loud. I do not know who these people are. I close my eyes because like many bottoms, when somebody's cutting on me, I don't want to say anything. And I don't remember their voices. I don't remember who they are unless they tell me after. I have never remembered a single person that has come through that line with a specific burden. A lot of their burdens are brought out during the, the ritual. They're hearing all these things, and all of a sudden they go, oh, that's me. Yeah. And so then they can come up and alleviate that pressure. We've been doing this for so many years at Frelica now that people come in with the intention of, I've got this burden that I want to, to try to release. We've seen some some really amazing things happen through this, too. Uh, one of the stories we tell in class, and we tell people, be careful what you, what you ask for in your burden release. Uh, we had a... I didn't believe in this stuff at first, by the way. Okay. But what happened in this class, <laughs> I was doing it for him. Uh-huh. But what happened in this class made me believe. We had one, and it was probably three, maybe four years into doing it. We had gone through the, the hook pull part, and we'd gone to the burn release where I'm cutting elegant, and a young lady comes up and whispers in her ear the burden that she's, that she's really having trouble with her postpartum depression. But I didn't remember this. You know, I didn't remember her saying this. So she gets the cut, and the, and the lady moves on, and about two weeks later... Next day. Oh, no, yes, that's right, next day. Next day, she comes up to me in the hall and says, thank you so much, and I just, you know, you're welcome. I didn't know what for, but I'm being polite. And she goes, oh, thank you for taking my burden through you. I'm going through horrible postpartum depression to the point of having to get psychiatric care. And I woke up this morning... And I felt like a new person. It was not there. I'm light. I'm happy. Got an email to remember two weeks later. And women won't understand this. Women who have been pregnant before, what is the first thing that gets rid of postpartum depression? Is being pregnant again. They had gone up to the room that evening, done the fun deed. She was actually pregnant the next morning when her postpartum depression had disappeared. Okay. And yes, it can be that instant, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So so the universe can do some funny things. You ask for it. Be careful what you ask for. Be specific. Uh-huh. Two years later, we're doing that same ritual at another facility in Alabama. And all of a sudden, as I'm starting to tell the story, I hear from the back of the room, do you want to see a picture of the baby? Because I came here tonight just to show you. <laughs> wow. So you have a fan club. <laughs> <laughs> Will we uh, see you at Frolicon this year? Yes, they yes. have told us. They have told us yes. I give them the option every year, and they said it wouldn't be Frolicon with the powers that be. Said it wouldn't be Frolicon without endorphins. And I have to agree. I want to thank you for being on the show tonight because this is just something that really changed the way I look at things uh, when I first went to your class, and I certainly want to go every year because it is a um, a changing thing for myself and, and anyone else that goes in the room. And, and we do it other places too, but we won't do it more than two or three times a year. We have to live it two or three times a year. It's, it kills me. It just takes <laughs> too much out of us. Listeners, if you see Elegant and Archer coming to a neighborhood near you, do attend. It's a wonderful thing. 
Thank you. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon, and thank you for being on the show tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You have been listening to episode 163 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we chat with Dr. Brad Sagarin on Culture of Affirmative Consent.